0: So this morning, we're talking about the parable of the great banquet. Jesus gave a lot of parables. The parable of the great banquet. And um, it's in Luke 14. And Jesus cared a lot about codes of hospitality, especially the codes of hospitality of his day. And it wasn't that he was careful to uphold them. Actually, Jesus wanted to undermine the codes of hospitality in his day because they were based on a system of reciprocity. That's a big word, but it meant that you invite somebody over to your house for dinner and they were going to repay the favor and often um, there were all types of um, elements of status and prestige based on who you invited and who invited you back. And Jesus uh, is having none of it because by definition, That system of reciprocity excludes the poor and the powerless, the very people that the gospel is meant to reach, the people who are on the margins, the alienated, the people who aren't in the inner circle. In fact, one of the reasons I think why people probably aren't crazy about going to church is because it seems like a system of insiders, right? It's like the locals-only group, right? And if you're an outsider, you just... eh. You know, it's hard. You know, it's, some people, it's not that hard if you're an outgoing person, you know, and you just introduce yourself to everybody because you're just fun and outgoing. But a lot of people, it feels like an impenetrable inner circle that, yeah, it just seems too hard. Forget the whole thing. And that's not what the gospel and the church is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this system of people taking care of each other to the point where others are excluded. It's supposed to be um, an inclusive um, community and family that is constantly reaching out to people outside of its own circle, constantly being a, a family and, uh, of welcoming, right? A home of welcoming. Um, and so um, Jesus gives us two lessons in a parable. We're going to read Luke 14 right now. Two lessons in a parable. One is how to behave if you're invited to a banquet. The other is what you should do if you throw a banquet, and both of these lessons Jesus uses to transition into the great banquet at the end of time and who's going to be on God's dinner list, so to speak. So let's read Luke 14, verses 7 through 24. Excuse me, um, 7 through 24. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we, we cannot understand anything except you give us um, understanding through your Spirit. And We pray that the Spirit would have its work in our hearts now, that we would be transformed by this passage and this story, and that our hearts would be convicted and convinced, and that we would leave this place differently than the way we came in. And Lord, that we might be renewed in the image of Jesus Christ through the hearing and preaching of this good word from Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the ancient Roman world was a world which structured all of life according to social status and rank. Now, status was based on a person's relative honor. If you could make people think you were important by, for instance, sitting at an honored table with other important people, You can increase your prestige in society. Meals were used to publicize and reinforce social hierarchies. And because of this, whom one invited to a meal was a matter of great importance. You wouldn't want to invite a person of low status or rank because, well, that wouldn't help you or enhance or preserve your social position. A modern example of this is high school. A new student comes into high school, and the first table to welcome them is kind of the, well, like the nerd table, I guess. And by the end of the semester, she's switched tables because she's realized that sitting with the popular kids can do wonders for her reputation. It's kind of like that. Um, The gospel, though, is about inclusivity of those on the margins. In fact, it's a main theme of the book of Luke. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all have different things they're trying to go after, but the main theme of Luke is inclusion of people who are alienated, the oppressed, the poor, in Jesus' day, women, disabled people, people who were not a part of the inner religious circle, kind of the temple community. So there was the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, people on the margins were alienated from the religious life of faith in God. And this is what Jesus is going after. And so Jesus is broadening the circle of belonging. Who gets to belong and who doesn't. And the first thing he does is he challenges our lust for status and rank. So number one, Jesus challenges our lust for status and rank. In verses 1 through 7, Jesus has been invited to the house of a Pharisee and notices that the guests... Well, they seek out the most important seats. So, if you can imagine the door opening up and everybody rushing in to sit in the important seats. In the Greek, it's literally translated the first seats. So, it might not necessarily have been the the seat up front, but it meant the most prominent seats. So, if we had somewhere in this auditorium, you know, maybe it doesn't matter where it was at, but maybe it said like reserved for friends of the pastor or something. I've seen churches like that. But, you know, it was Jesus recognized that that when they all came in, they all scurried and clamored to sit in the most important seats. And he he calls them out on it. And the idea is not that honor is bad, right? It's not honor isn't bad, but the idea is if you're going to be honored, let someone else honor you. Don't honor yourself. And he gives this parable that undermines the contemporary codes of hospitality. He says, look, if you sit in an important seat, we just read it, and if a person more important comes along, you'll be asked to give up your seat. And that's really embarrassing. That's essentially the point, right? Have you ever sat somewhere and someone said, oh, I'm sorry, sir, ma'am, this this seat is reserved, and you have to stand up, oh, oh, right? It's embarrassing. So there's a very practical point Jesus is making to get his point across. Don't honor yourself, because if somebody more important than you comes along, you're going to be humiliated. Right? Makes sense. But he's making an over, a larger point about humility. And he says, um, sit in the last seat and maybe the host will upgrade you and say, friend, move up higher. Right, that's a better feeling. You're sitting in the back of an auditorium and the host says, hey, you, we've got a seat up front for you. Like, that feels really good. And this is what he says. He says, then you'll be honored in the presence of You'll be honored in the presence of everyone present. So he doesn't have a problem with honor. Jesus is not taking aim at the idea that anybody should be honored, but here's the statement that sums it all up in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. In other words, everyone that lifts themselves up, they're going to be brought low. But everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, right? Again, going along with this theme, of God including the marginalized, the alienated. God is saying, no, this is a, I want you to think differently about how you treat people. And what Jesus is doing is he is introducing a new community. This is a new ideal ideal of what it means to live in the world and be human beings, right? This is a new way. Now, um, this is the opposite way of the world, and it was radical stuff, for the first century, and here's why. In our culture, we've had 2,000 years of Christian thought circulating through the Western world. So the idea of humility is kind of a virtue for us in today, even though we probably don't practice it very well in our culture. At the very least, most people in America pay, pay lip service to it. But in the first century, humility was not a virtue. Humility was the domain of unimportant people, Weak people. In other words, if people were humble, it was because they had to be. They had no power. They had no money. They had no influence. And so what Jesus is saying, he's talking to important people, and he's saying, be humble. This is radical stuff. Totally radical stuff. And um, it, it highlights this theme of the New Testament that is really picked up from the Old Testament. The theme of the proud versus the humble. We often think of the Bible dividing righteous and unrighteous, and it does. Sinners and saints, and it does. But there is this larger theme, this story arc of Scripture that focuses in on two categories that are everywhere, especially here in the book of Luke, and it's the proud and the humble. The proud and the humble. You'll see God showing mercy to sinners if they're humble. And you'll see God being harsh towards godly people if they're proud. They don't get off the hook just because they belong to the church or because they're part of the chosen people, the Hebrews or the Israelites. If they're proud, they're going to get a thrashing from God because he hates pride. The book of Proverbs says, six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination to him. One of them is a proud look. God hates it. He just hates it. And it's something that we struggle with. We struggle with pride. Pride is one of those things that often becomes evident to others observing you, others observing the person who's proud m- m- sooner and quicker than it does the person who's guilty of pride. It's, it's, it's usually visible by everyone else except the person who's guilty of it. And so there's this theme of the proud versus the humble. It's a thread running throughout all of Scripture. Micah 6 8, this is the Old Testament. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And in James 4, 6, the New Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the crowd. What? What did I say? God opposes the proud. Did I say the crowd? Sorry. But gives grace to the humble. Get some water repair or something. But God does, He opposes the proud. Uh, he gives grace to the humble. Um, and just a quick application point some of us are maybe looking for an answered prayer or wondering why God hasn't moved in our lives in certain ways. It's always helpful to do a, a check of the heart. Am I lifted up in pride? Have I been guilty of pride? When we just had our confession of sin, one of the things we we confessed for is is arrogance and apathy and pride. And pride creeps in really easy sometimes into our lives. There are a lot of people um, that are on top in this world who in the judgment will find themselves at the bottom. A lot of people who stepped on others to get ahead by cutthroat actions, advanced themselves through shady dealings, oppressing little people, promoted themselves to places of honor that they didn't deserve, and the justice of God will one day catch up with them. The Bible says what? The meek will what? Inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. Who's the meek? The humble. And what is the manifestation of humility? Well, it's doing things for people without expecting anything back of them. And so the second point, the first point is Jesus challenges our lust for rank and status. And number two, the humble are characterized by radical generosity. So if Jesus is challenging pride and status and arguing instead for humility, he's saying that humble people are generous towards others without expecting anything in return. Verse 12, when you give a dinner, a banquet... Don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, all of you are thinking, what, I can't invite my loved ones to my house because they're going to invite me back? Well, let's look at the background. Um, As is the case with many of Jesus' parables... The original application of Jesus' words here in verses 12 through 14 um, belonged to some cultural circumstances that don't really exist anymore. When you had a dinner, um, it was the culture of the time in the first century because people usually lived in villages where everybody knew each other's business and you had a dinner with the doors open. And the idea is whoever, whatever guest you had over, well, the whole village because it was kind of a community, they would be able to freely come and go inside and outside of your house when you had a banquet. Which means that whoever you invited, every one of your neighbors got to see who was in your house dining with you. And one example of this is in Luke chapter, um, I wrote it down here, Luke chapter 7, when the woman comes in to the house when Jesus is dining with Simon the Pharisee. And the woman comes in with an alabaster box, right? She, she's walking by. She heard Jesus was in town. She's walking by, and she sees him in the house, and she just walks right in because the doors are open. And, of course, she spills on purpose the ointment in the alabaster box all over Jesus, right? And um, so this is an example of that. And so what Jesus is getting at is he is getting at this idea. This culture, it has a cultural context in the first century. Now for us today, it would be like saying, the next time you're in the city, go and sit down to, on a park bench to a homeless person and just hang out with them for a couple hours. You know? Just hang out with a homeless person for a couple hours. And in our mind, right, even as I said that, we're all thinking of all the problems with that. Right? They might be hostile. Homeless people often smell really bad. Um, what would people think of us if a friend of mine drove by and saw me sitting with some homeless person who lives out of a shopping cart in Forest Park? Right? There's all, all kinds of ob- objections. But that might be one modern example of what Jesus is talking about because he's not so much concerned with being inside your house or outside your house. The idea is showing magnanimity. And generosity of spirit to people who can do nothing back for you. They can't repay you. Right? A homeless person can do anything back for you. They couldn't, you know, take you out to lunch because you spent two hours with them one day. It's one of those things that's the embodiment of humility and love, which is just a pure charity of spirit, right? It requires, it requires a presence of mind to be with someone like that or a disabled person, someone who maybe can't do anything back for you where it requires focus and presence of mind to sit and be with a disabled person and just love them. One begins to realize when you listen to Jesus' teaching, that Jesus' teachings were risky. I think I'm waking up to the fact that um, I was I grew up in a church tradition that taught me wrong. That everything you do that is faithful will have a reward like kind of like an immediate, tangible reward. And what Jesus is essentially telling people to do is, yeah, don't worry about your reputation. It might get thrashed along the way. That's okay. Like, there is no, you'll be vindicated. Don't worry. You know, when everyone starts talking bad about you, like the sky is going to open and God is going to say, no, you're wrong. Like, obeying Jesus is risky sometimes. You know, your reputation's on the line sometimes. And sometimes people will lie about you or, or their opinion of you will, will, you know, be altered, and it may never recover. I can imagine that Mary, you know, the, the, her reputation, the Bible doesn't ever say that she was vindicated, and people said, oh, no, 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 she was pregnant with the Holy Spirit. No, she never cheated on Joseph. It doesn't say that. She may have for the, her entire life be considered a harlot. It doesn't say. The world is going to do what the world does. But God rewards us ultimately in the resurrection of the just. There will be a payday. There will be reward. But those rewards don't always come immediately. It's not always an instant gratification where you get God's rewards now. But here's the deal. This is the essence of the gospel. God is for the powerless. He values the humble and the lowly of this world. And he wants us to also... And Luke's purpose in writing this is that we, reading Luke's gospel, think to ourselves, oh, this is how God is. God's attitude towards the humble and the lowly is one of love and inclusion. This must be a reflection of God's attitude towards us, sinners, spiritually weak, and powerless to save ourselves, and God condescended to us, reached out to us in our sins when we could do nothing to help ourselves and and brought us close. That's the idea, is that this is what God did for us. God's radical generosity was on display in the sending of his Son into the world, and this is captured beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. Let each of you Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others, and let the same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard his equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even on a cross. So the mind that was in Jesus, which humbled himself, lowered himself, didn't exploit his divine power, right? I mean, we believe Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He existed with God the Father in eternity past, in ages past, before the worlds were created, and he came to this world and humbled himself like a lowly slave to do the work of God. Now, if you keep reading that, passage in Philippians 2 it says therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow there is rewards there is eternal rewards and that reward will so far outweigh any suffering or pain we experience here in this life for bearing the name of Christ but while we're experiencing some of that suffering and pain taking some of those risks it's hard It's hard sometimes to do what Jesus instructs us and commands us to do. Verse 14, right? You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So what does this radical generosity not motivated by self-interest look like? Well, it looks like hospitality to people outside your comfort zone. And we think of hospitality as like inviting someone over for like a sandwich and tea. But hospitality is any act of gracious welcome and care and inclusion for others, right? Especially those outside your comfort zone. Anybody can invite a friend over, right? I mean, that's hospitality, but it's not a challenge to your heart. You can, anybody can invite over someone you like, right? Invite over a total stranger. Invite over someone you don't like, right? That's hard. And... This radical generosity not motivated by self-interest, you know how else it looks? It looks like having an attitude that does not commodify people, right? Think of the word commodity, right? When you commodify people, you look at them and you assess the value of the relationship in terms of what you can get out of it, what they can give back to you, right? So godly generosity and a generous spirit Um, that embraces others in hospitality, does not commodify people. It doesn't look at people that way. What can I get out of this? What can they do for me? Uh, It's a waste of time. But it loves people freely without any promise of repayment. So selfless giving and concern for others is the ultimate manifestation of love. And then third, my final point, is the gospel initiates a new community grounded in grace. Grace. When Jesus had told these two stories, when you go to a banquet, behave this way with humility, sit in the low seat, you'll be brought up. And then he says, and when you throw a banquet, invite people who can't do anything for you, even though your reputation may suffer. And then he uses these two stories of a banquet to give us a parable about the great banquet at the end of time. Verse 15, a man speaks up and says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And in this plot twist, Jesus gives a parable that points to this great messianic banquet to which people of Jesus' day would have understood only Jews would be invited. And this is what Jesus says. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Jesus, he says, since we're talking about banquets, there was a man who invited all of his, you know, all of his friends, all the important people, the people in his inner circle, and they all made excuses why they didn't have to come. They didn't want to come. And what this points to is that the original people on the guest list were God's covenant people, right? Right? The Jews, God's chosen people, they were God's covenant people. And God sends his son to announce the kingdom, essentially inviting his kinsmen to the great banquet. And when they hear the message of Jesus, they go, no, I'm not interested. That's the point of this parable, that the people who were initially on the guest list as welcome guests didn't want to come, and if you, again, go back to first century culture, um, that was a great insult for, to shun and to spurn the invitation of a friend over for dinner. It was a great insult. Um, and this is the great tragedy of history, that the long-awaited Messiah finally came and the Messiah's people didn't recognize him. They didn't accept him. But that was the tragedy. What was tragedy for them? That was a tragedy for them, but it meant grace for us. It meant grace for the rest of us. For them, the gospel wasn't good news. But for others, the people of low status, despised occupation, ignoble heritage, religious impurity, the poor, the blind, the lame, which is not only a literal assessment, but also a metaphor for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were unclean. They didn't have the pedigree that the Jews did. They weren't part of the trail tribes. They weren't a part of God's original covenant people. Those are the outsiders. And so the gospel message, which originally came to the Jew, in fact, Romans 1 says, salvation is of the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It came to the Jews, and they rejected it, not all of them, but as a people they did in the first century. And that message, that declaration, that God's wedding banquet is coming, that list gets bigger. And the servants are sent out, right? To proclaim the invitation into the kingdom of God to all people, to everyone. Through the heralding of this good news, God is establishing a new community grounded, not in religious purity, right? So if you're here this morning and you're still trying to figure out, you know, whether you want to be here or not and you feel like, I don't, I don't know that I measure up. And, or, this is not a place for religiously pure people. This is not a place for people pretending that they have it all together. This is not that place. This is a place for imperfect people with flaws, problems, and sins, and issues to come together as a family recognizing that God's lavish grace has been extended, extended to us through Jesus. God's lavish love has been extended to us, people who are outsiders. You know, literally and metaphorically, the poor and the destitute and the lame and the blind. And God has welcomed us in to his banquet. And he says this final statement. For I tell you, none of those men who are originally invited shall taste my banquet. That seems vindictive at first. As if... God originally didn't take his own medicine, right? If God is the master of this parable who threw a great banquet, well, why didn't he take his own advice and initially invite the poor and the lame and the destitute? But the point that Jesus is getting at in this story when he says, I tell you that none of those who were originally invited shall taste my banquet, you could read it and say, well, if they, now if they wanted to come, he won't let them. I read it and I say, actually, when the people who thought they were originally, that they should have been on the list, if they change their mind, but then they see that the outsider has been welcomed into the banquet, they won't want to taste the banquet. They won't want to come. And again, this ends, again, ends up with a division between the proud and the humble. Because when the proud see people beneath them, in their mind, of lower rank and lower status at the banquet, they won't want to come. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, they're never going to taste my banquet because when they see that, those, that the gates of grace swing open to welcome all, they won't want it. They won't want to come. And the point is this. Some people will never accept the grace of God because, you know, it removes their boasting. It removes worldly accomplishment. It removes any idea of measuring up because you've got money. It removes all of that. And it says, you come to the table a beggar. We all do. Some people don't like that, though. That's the message of grace. And for that reason, some people will never accept it. Pedigree, money, status, power. It doesn't have any currency in the kingdom of God. And that's why many today won't be on God's dinner list at the end of time. The table of God's great banquet is a table of grace, not a table of merit. Let's pray.